Amen. We're in Jonah chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we began our study in Jonah 1. If you'd like to see that video, you can go to YouTube and Calvary Chapel, uh, The Rock, Santa Rosa, and you can listen to that first chapter. We're in chapter 2 this morning. The first chapter, I titled it, The World's Worst Missionary. <laughs> you know, in, in chapter 1, you know, Jonah is a prophet of God and supposed to be a messenger of God. And when God tells him to go to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and he goes to Tarshish, which is as far as way as you can go from Nineveh. Uh, Tarshish, we don't really know where that is. Um, most scholars believe that uh, Jonah was headed as far as way as he could go. That would be Spain. So that's why they say Tarsus is Spain. And so he was two, on his way for a 2,000-mile journey uh, to get away from the call of God. Now, of course, you know, God's going to change Jonah's free will <laughs> with his sovereign will by creating a storm. And the storm there was severe. And so the men began to call. The mariners began to call upon their gods. Uh, they realized that wasn't helping, so they went down below the ship to empty the cargo, and they find Jonah there. And so the captain says to Jonah, what are you doing? Get up top and call upon your god. He doesn't, by the way. He goes up to the top, but he doesn't call upon God, the true and living God. Now they decided, well, let's get some lots, and, you know, that's the long straw and short straws, and whoever ends up with the short straw, that's the person uh, that has the issue. Uh, and so they did that, and the short straw fell on Jonah. Of course, you know, what's the odds of that happening? You know, and, and you can do all the odds with that, but it's the sovereignty of God that causes that short straw to fall upon Jonah's hand. Now, the reason for that is God is working on Jonah. Come on, Jonah, I'm speaking to you. I'm trying to line you up to my will, you know, and, and, and Jonah's response was, okay, it's me. And they go, well, who are you? Where's your people group? What's the issue? And he says, well, I'm a prophet of God. I, I come from the true and living God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea. <laughs> this whole mess is because of me. He goes, I've been disobedient. And so God has brought this trouble upon you because of my disobedience. And so the men were more fearful, and so they rode harder to get to the shore, and they realized they're in trouble. It isn't working. So they asked Jonah, what should we do? And Jonah said, just throw me over. Throw me over. You know, and, and, and the men are like, no way, we're not going to do that. If you're a, a man of God, and God is, you know, trying to work in your heart, and you want us to kill you? No. The thing I want to note there is that at no time has Jonah repented. Isn't that strange? At no time. God had provided, provided the ship, of course, for Jonah to get on. God had provided the storm to get a Jonah's attention, yet no repentance. God had provided the straw, the short straw to fall to Jonah. Jonah should have realized that's not a ch by chance <laughs> that God had done that, and he should have repented and then God will provide the fish once they throw them over. That's when he should have realized, okay, I'm done. I'm repenting. Isn't that like human behavior? How many times did you run away from God when you were, you know, before you seriously got involved with Christianity and gave your life to Jesus? You know, we say it's not religion, it's relationship, right? A relationship with the true living God. How many times did you wrestle with God? How many times did you fight with God? I remember... The time that I, you know, that my mom asked me to go to church, and and so I said, okay, I'm going to go to please my mother because I couldn't, I, I hate religion, I can't, I can't, I couldn't stand it, but to please my mother, I love my mom, I still do, and she's alive today, and I adore her, and and so I went to church, and I remember the pastor preaching the gospel, and I said, I'm out of here, man. That is heavy duty, the conviction, right? The Holy Spirit speaking to the soul of man, and so he was, he. Wow, listen to that. Here comes our own, <laughs> our own flood story. <laughs> so, so he, you know, so my, my, my heart was pierced, and I said, Dad, I'm getting out of here. And I remember leaving for three months. I said, I don't want nothing to do with you, God. 
And in my actions, I remember going, I lived in San Diego at the time, going across the border and enjoying myself across the border, and I'd be in these clubs, and I could hear God's voice. I love you, and I died for you. No, I don't need you. Thank you very much. I don't need you, you know. And uh, I just thank the God I didn't end up in the belly of a fish, but <laughs> I could have. Then three months later, of course, my mom invited me to church same gospel message in a different way, in a different form, and I found myself at the altar giving my life to Jesus, and then I realized what took me so long. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So here's Jonah. It says there in chapter 1, verse 15, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. That's a miracle in itself, right? From raging storm that should have took hours and hours for the sea to be calm. But instantly, the waves have ceased and it's super calm. In fact, because of this, it says in verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And I love that because now they're believers. They understand the true and living God and they're willing to serve him and they make vows to him. I will follow you all the days of my life kind of vows here. Verse 17, Jonah's in the water. Now, you know, it's instantly calm. And I don't know if you've ever gone fishing. When someone says fish on, you usually walk over and you're looking at the edge of the boat to see what kind of fish it is. Well, that's what you would do with Jonah, right? If he was over there, like, oh, wow, I hope you make it, you know? You know? And he's just going for it. And all of a sudden, this big old fish takes him in. Now, of course, if you guys read Michael Packard's story of being uh, swallowed by a hump, he, well, he wasn't totally swallowed, but in the mouth of one of them humpback wells in, uh, in 2021, and he tells a story of going deep under, and then the well it couldn't swallow him, so it went up, and he could see the, the clarity of the sky, and then he was spit out, or spat out, and, uh, and, and he tells this story, and you can read it, and you can see the video, and, and the two guys that came and rescued him that saw him being spit out of the well, that's an amazing story. Um, the humpback well doesn't have the throat to swallow man, but the sperm well does, and that's why they believe it's a, it was a well that did it. Here in the Bible, it says fish, uh, sperm whales can grow up to be 72 feet long. They have found squids that weigh up to 450 pounds in these sperm whales. Amazing size and bulk. So if it was a well, then wow, what a well of a story, right? But anyways, <laughs> Jonah inside the fish, three days and three nights. One of the things which we seem to forget is that Jonah didn't know that he was going to be in the fish. He didn't know that he was going to be in the belly of the fish for three days. He thought he was dead as soon as he hit the water. But God intervened. He would have died if God didn't intervene. But just at the right time, God appointed a fish. Think about that statement, just at the right time. How many of you have just at the right time stories? Who sent the great fish? The same person who arranged the boat, the same person who arranged the lot to fall on Jonah, the same person who sent the great storm, God did it all. God wanted to get his attention. Why? First, that Jonah might be saved. Second, that he might repent of his behavior. Repentance is not preached very much in the churches anymore. They're afraid to offend. Repentance means to do a 180. Turn away from your lifestyle and turn to God and so here, God is doing that very work to prepare Jonah to repent. It seems that it's work. It's working here because we'll read it uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember that our story is about our great God. It isn't about Jonah. <laughs> it's about God's abounding grace. And so in chapter 2, the title for this is Lessons from the Belly of the Fish. Let's read it, verse 1. He's in there. I don't know if it's been three days that he's in there and now he's going to pray. We don't know the timeline, but it seems to be that way. Listen to this, verse one. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. What took him so long? <laughs> he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Think about that. In my distress. You know, I, I think of, that's probably the norm <laughs> for us as human beings when we call upon the Lord. But when we have good times, it seems that that prayer life seems to fade. It doesn't become a normative in our life. It doesn't come, it's not normal, uh, you know, waking up in the morning, calling upon the Lord. But it's in the distressful times 
you know, and, and I remember when being in India and uh, when the pandemic broke out and I thought, oh my goodness, what's going on in America? We were watching everything in America. And then they locked down India and we were there. We were stuck for 26 uh, days, I believe, there. No flights coming in or out of India. We couldn't even get a little flight over to Delhi to get a big plane over the U.S. There's zero flights. And we are on day, day 24, I think it is, day 25, and I'm thinking our food is running out. And, and, and I remember going in the woods and crying out to the Lord in my distress. And I cried out to him like never before. I was so afraid for my wife and my daughter. For me, you know, like, I, don't, I don't mind dying. I'll be in heaven. But, you know, <laughs> my wife, my daughter, you know, and, and just, you know, that's when prayer life becomes real. And it should be like that all the time. For most of us, we find ourselves crying out to God in times of distress. I'm in distress. It says there, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And I love that one. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I call for help and you listen to my cry. I love that. The next thing we hear from Jonah is the fact that when he cried out to the Lord out of his affliction, the Lord answered him. What an assurance we have today, knowing that when we cry out to the Lord, he answers us. Amen. He says to the Lord, out of the belly of Sheol, I'll cry, I cried. And you heard my voice. The Hebrews believed that Sheol was the place the dead go to. And he refers to himself as being in Sheol, which means he saw himself as good as dead. How many of you have been there? When he cried out to the Lord from the place as good as dead, the Lord heard his voice. What a comfort thought to some of us who might be going through that situation right now where we feel as we're as good as dead. But the Lord is able to hear us if only we are willing to cry out. This is the Psalms of those who live, whose lives have been shipwrecked, who are at the end of their rope, for whom the bottom has dropped out, Maybe you lost a loved one, a job, or experienced the breakup of a marriage. Like Jonah, the disasters may even have been of their own making. Maybe that's you. So what should you, what should you do? Pray. Call upon the Lord. The Lord can answer your prayer and move in your behalf. I've seen it hundreds of times. I remember my brother, Joe, and I've shared this story with you. He's in heaven now, but... Uh, he had, you know, before he came to the Lord, he had many DUIs. You know, he was just partying hard, a young 20-year-old kid. And, um, and all of a sudden, he had three or four DUIs, and, and they were right back to back to back. And so they were going to put him in prison. And so he had to go to court. And just a few months before that, he gives his life to Jesus. I got saved about three months before him. And I was sharing with him day and night all the time, you know. And uh, he ended up giving his life to Jesus. Uh, and he said, all right, Lord, here I am. I'm going to the court system. I know I got to go to prison and I have to serve, I have to serve my term. I, I did this to myself. I'm not going to blame you, God, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that you're going to go in my behalf for whatever reason or whatever you want to be done in my life, but I'm going to serve you. I'm going to live for you. And so he gets to the courthouse and the judge decides to put all the DUI into one. And he says this, he says, Listen, he goes, are you going to get drunk again? He says, no, I'm born again. I'm, I'm not going to drink that stuff anymore. He goes, all right, then this is what's going to happen. You'll have to do some weekends at work, but I'm going to forgive you and give you mercy from, from, all, these, these, uh, uh, the, the, from all the judgment. He goes, and my brother came home and he said, I'm going to serve the Lord for the rest of my life. How could this be? But God alone who rescued me. I've heard many stories like that. God who intervenes, cry out to him. He's the one that can go on your behalf. Even when you created the problem. That's most of the time, right? So, you know, we create, you know, when we've thrown ourselves in these horrible situations. But he's the God that hears and the God that can act. Love him so much for that. We should pray. Verse three says this, and this is, he's just gonna be honest here and, and, and describe and remember that he's writing after the fact. He's gonna write about 
how he felt inside the fish's belly. It says, you hurled me deep into the very heart of the sea, seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and, and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surround me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. Can you see that? I see it so clear, you know. <laughs> to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit. Oh Lord, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Jonah goes on to say that when his soul fainted, when he was losing all hope of survival, imagine him in that fish, day three. Why am I living? Why am I still alive? I should be dead by now. And it says that when his soul fainted, when he was losing all hope and survival, he did something that made all the difference between victory and defeat, life and death. He remembered the Lord and Jonah went to the one person who can make a difference in impossible situations, like it's God himself that answers. Do you have impossible situations happening in your life right now? I, you know, when I think of all the mission field uh, that are all the areas that my wife and I travel to, these unreached people groups and thinking, how are you going to reach them through us, God? It is impossible. <laughs> And yet God would open doors and we would meet certain individual, tribe leaders or whoever they were, and open these amazing, impossible doors because God heard our voice. I remember holding them to his promise. I remember saying, God, you said to go therefore and make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's what I've done, Lord. So you need to open the doors for us. What seems impossible for us is so possible for you. I remember praying that. And God would open all these doors in all these countries. And it was amazing to watch. Our beautiful Savior going before us and doing what we thought was impossible. That's amazing. He addresses God and says that his prayers went up to God and he added another detail into your holy temple. He's making a reference again to heaven where God dwells forever. Isn't it amazing that prayers by mere mortal human beings like us can reach into the very presence of God? Should that not be motivating thought to cause us to pray more to the Lord, knowing that he hears, answers, and makes the difference to our impossible situations? It does for me all the time. Lord, you can do it. Lord, you can save this marriage. I had a, um, a young lady come up to me and tell me about her situations with her parents and, and uh, different diseases that are going on and, and mental disorders and stuff. And she's at her wit's end and doesn't know how to deal with it. And so I said, let's pray for God to do a miracle. And she says, can that really happen? <laughs> I, I, I'm there with you. <laughs> this is what I said. I'm there with you. If it was up to humans, yeah, it's impossible. But for God, it's possible. And I remember praying for her family, and I remember getting home, and now every time her name comes into my thoughts, I'm praying, Lord, what is impossible for us is possible for you. Reach them. Bring healing. I've seen it. I've seen our great God move. Verse 8 is one of my favorite preaching verses. <laughs> Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. This verse is one of my favorite preaching verses. I love sharing with, it, uh, sharing with people this. Putting your trust in money, putting your trust in cars and homes, in, in, in your family structure and all these things here on earth. Yes, there's, there's, some, there's some wisdom in that. You know, there's balance in that. But it's all useless if you don't have God. It's all become idols that we created in our own hearts. Something, things that we placed above God, we created idols. Now, we would never say that, but our actions dearly speak it. 
we, 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 we do it simply by our actions. We trust in our money, our cleverness, our families, our own hard work. But in the end, these things are worthless idols. God wants to rescue us his way. If we trust in anything else, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. The balance of going to school, you know, balance of getting a job and having home and the food in your belly, that's important. Make sure it doesn't become the idol, though, the God, the thing that you pay attention the most in your life. It has to be different. It has to be God. Put my trust solely in him to provide all the things. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. Verse 9 not Jonah, though. Jonah has come to a place now. He's emptied. He's, he's, he's thankful now for God's great deliverance. And he says this, but with the song of thanksgiving, we'll sacrifice to you. I, he can't bring any animals to sacrifice. He can't put any fires there. But what he can do is give a song of praise to his great God. Amen. Sometimes that's the very sacrifice you can give. Have you ever been in the car driving for a long period? And you, that's all you do is just like sing and worship the whole time. And God's saying, this is an amazing sacrifice of thanksgiving. Here's Jonah, can't give you anything, but what I can do is give you my heart and worship you. And then he says this, what I have vowed, I will make good. What I have vowed, now he's saying, Lord, I'm sure he's saying this, Lord, whatever you ask of me, I'll, I'll do now. I've changed my mind. <laughs> You mean God changed your mind, Jonah? <laughs> Free will and sovereignty will never figure that out, man. It's a big rub. It's a friction. But here we see it played out. God is changing the mind of Jonah. And now Jonah says this in verse 10. I'm sorry. Uh, in, at the end of verse 9, he says this. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I love that. And in verse 10, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah into the dry land, I think of the timing of that. Was it at, during high beach time <laughs> when everybody's there? You know, and they see this guy being spit out of, by, the, by this fish and how far was the spit out? How far was the vomit? And, you know, and, and what did it do? Did it, the, you know, did it destroy his hair? Was he bald and was he whited spotted? Was he different that people were like, whoa, what the heck is this guy? You know, because he does, he does bring a message that catches everybody's heart. And he says this, and the Lord commanded, uh, commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out of, my, out of the dry, out, out onto the dry land. Now Jonah goes on to say that he will pray what he has vowed. Often, how often have we heard either ourselves or others say that if God delivered us out of the situation, we would do something out of our hearts and in gratitude of his intervention. How many of us have done that? This seems to be the case with Jonah as well. Perhaps he has told the Lord that if he was delivered, then he would go ahead and go with God's call on his life to take the message to, uh, to Nineveh. This reminds us of the passage in Romans 12.1. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brother, this is Paul speaking, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. Here too, Paul is asking the Roman believers and, as, uh, and us as well to not forget how merciful God has been to them and to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And then he goes on to say that that is our reasonable service, meaning that a life of grateful service is the re reasonable response to such mercy of God in our lives. That's so important to see in our in lives. You know, we, we, we as pastor watch, you know, the process of what God's doing in one's life. When, God, when you realize that God has saved you and he's put you on the straight and narrow and, you, and your, your aim is to live for him, there are definitely changes that take place in your soul. And there's a gratitude of service. I want to serve you now, Lord. What can I do? Where can I help? And, and when I got saved, I came to the pastor. And I said, here I am, man. What can I do? He says, start with the carpets, cleaning the carpets. Start with, you know, the, taking the trash out. And, you know, here's the nursery. And there's the baby that needs to be changed. I'm like, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there. You know, it, it, you know, most, you know, when you get 
this attitude of, of, you know, haughtiness. You're like, I would never do that. You know, I'm better off as a preacher. I'm better off as a Bible instructor, you know, and it's a haughtiness, but not me. Whatever you want, Lord. I'm just happy to be the janitor (laughs) in the house of God. And God would promote me from glory to glory. And that's what he did. But my heart was whatever you want. And I wasn't serving the pastor. I wasn't serving the church. Get that out of your mind, guys. Because some of you, I come and ask you to help out with certain things. You're like, oh, that's not for me. I don't have time. I don't know. Whatever. You're serving the living God. You're serving the living God. Nothing's beneath me. I'll do whatever you ask, Lord. You know, I, 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 the, the Lord has been so merciful to me. The moment I gave my life to Jesus at 25, and now this old dog here. <laughs> mercy upon mercy upon mercy. I owe him everything. Everything. Romans 12, 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He ends with the most powerful statement in the prayer. Salvation is of the Lord. Though Jonah was referring both himself being saved by God in this situation, he also is referring to the fact that if one is to be saved from sin and its penalty, it is only through Jesus Christ. If you want to go to heaven and have your sins forgiven, it is through Jesus. The issue is sin, my friends. No religion in the world can deal with sin the very rebellion in your heart against the things that are God, of God. His written word, especially the Ten Commandments, you know, I love, you know, going out on the street corner and sharing the word and you ask someone, so you think you're a good person? They're, oh, yes. Have you ever stole? Mm, little. Have you ever lied? Uh, a little, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you just go down that list and you're like, well, if you were to go to heaven and stand before God, what do you think he would say to you? You're a good person or a bad person? And they typically all would have to say, and they all say, yeah, well, I'm a bad person. Well, where do bad persons go? Heaven or hell? By your own admission, you're a lion, adulterous thief. By your own admission. And then, of course, they have to consider now their sins. Sins need to be dealt with. And Jesus did that. That's why he hung on the cross. The reason why he was able to die for the sins of the world is because he was God. How deep is the that cavern? People always ask, what's the deepest question that you think you can come up with? I'll say, how deep was the cavern of sin that was paid for? Oh my goodness, is it my sins, your sins, placed on him and received it gladly for us because he was thinking of you while he was on the cross. It's Jesus. He's the only way. No other religion in the world will do that want to go to heaven and have your sins forgiven, it's through Jesus. There's no other way. No human, no animals, no idols, no philosophy or anything else could ever forgive you of sins. Only God's own Son, our Lord Jesus, can make you whole. Similar words are reflected in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you ask any of the major religious men who are dead and gone, how do you get to heaven? They'll tell you, I don't know. (laughs) Are you going to heaven? I don't know. (laughs) Jesus says, you can know for sure by giving your life to me. This story really is like the story of Jesus Christ. Jonah is a picture of Jesus. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was an Old Testament picture of the coming of Christ. Jonah and the fish, three days. Three days. Jesus in the grave, three days. But the big difference is this. Jonah went through intense suffering for his own sins. Jesus went through infinite suffering for our sins. Jonah felt like he was dead. Jesus really died. And he rose again to save everyone who will trust in him. Salvation is of the Lord. Without Jesus, we are in worse danger than Jonah was in the belly of the fish. But Jesus can and will save all who trust in him. All you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. I confess my sins. Repent. There's that word, repent. 
turn away and say, God, show me how to live for you. So amazing. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah into the dry land. Can you imagine that sight? Oh my goodness. All the beach, all the people on the beach, if they saw this, they would know that this guy has a message. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter three, verse one says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that beautiful? God is the... He's the God of first, second, and third, and fourth chances. Amen? Amen. He forgives. He gives us the, his, his, our, our orders. Come on. I have something great for you. He gave Jonah a second, time, a second time, a chance, and it says there, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And, uh, and on the first day Jonah started in the city, he proclaimed, God loves you. He has grace for you. Jesus died for you. No, what did it say? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In other words, he's shouting, turn or burn. <laughs> That's, he, he doesn't have a gracious message. I, I always go on the street and I give a gracious message, you know, but not him. He's like, if you don't turn, he doesn't even say that. He says, God is going to judge you. He's, he, I mean, this is his message, man. And by the way, that city is, is large. Um, three days journey in the city proclaiming this news. That's, that's big. Uh, at the end of this book, it'll say that there's 120,000 people in this city that don't know their left hand from their right hand. Um, some scholars say that that's speaking of the children. And if that's true, then you add grandma and grandpa, mom and dads, you know, all the uncles and aunties, you add all those guys and you may have over 600,000 people. But 120,000, just think of that one, it's like the size of Berkeley. Berkeley is 117 or 118,000 people. And here's Jonah would go to a city like that proclaiming this word. It says there, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Listen to what happens in verse five. Then the Ninevites believe God. How many? They, they declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on Seth cloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat nor drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Notice it's Elohim. It's the true living God. It's the God of Jonah. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Whoa, morality? (laughs) How did he know morality? That's funny, the arguments that go with that when you're out on the street corners, right? Where did morality come from? Well, it came from our civilized world. You know, the, the, the smart evolutionists, you know, that, that write all these amazing books, they'll tell you, now that's impossible. We're just a bunch of chemicals bouncing off each other. We can't come to that conclusion. <laughs> Morality comes from God. He's the author of it. It says that I put it in the hearts of man. Men know what's, what's right and wrong. Mankind. Here in Nineveh, Nineveh is... Uh, we have in antiquity, their writings, it says that when they were able to make a breakthrough into a city or a village, everybody committed suicide knowing how evil and harsh they would be. And, I, and in chapter one, I, I read some of that stuff from antiquity. Very, very difficult people that would do the most disgusting thing to people when they would conquer them. And so they declared a fast. It's the greatest revival I've ever seen in the Old Testament. It's the greatest one you'll ever see. In Psalms 51, 17, it says, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a, uh, and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise anyone who turns to God with the right heart, the broken heart, and says, I've sinned against you. It says this, God will never turn away from you. 
call upon him. I was in a prison, Utai Mesa in San Diego, with lifers. I was sharing with them about the prison of religion around the world who serve these millions of gods and all these gods hate them. So every bad accident, every evil thing, or every sickness is from a god, and they got to find the, that god to appease them. And so you'll read about those stories of women on their knees walking for a quarter of a mile on their knees and hands all bloodied because they're looking for an answer or a solution for their children or their their husband or vice versa for the husband, for the children or the wife. And, and, and they're looking for a solution and they can't find it there. And they're in prison. Every, every negative thing that happens, they're imprisoned by this, these gods. And I said to them, the prisoners there, the lifers, I said, you guys, you, you're in this prison, but you have air conditioning. I have to pay for that. You guys have food in your belly. You have freedom to walk around and you're here today, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we, we're, we're not in prison. <laughs> like those religious people. And I gave them Jesus Christ and him crucified, and many of them turned their lives to Jesus in the prison, still serving the Lord today. Every now and then we'll have a few that get out and they come and share at the church. It's amazing. But most of them are still lifers there. The greatest revival in the Old Testament 120,000 people sought God's forgiveness. There's repentance, right? The king says, we must turn away from our evil ways. There's repentance, the 180. Not popular in the church today to preach that. But when we come to Jesus, we ask him to come into our life and we ask him to show us how to live for him and we turn away from our old lifestyles that does not please him. That's the first step. The king said, give up your evil ways. 120,000 forgiven. In fact, the next time you read about it, in 612, later on, almost, almost 100 years later, there's a new generation that goes and attacks Israel under the hands of God, and then God destroys them. So this generation will pass by. The Welsh's revival began in the late 1904 there in Wales. There was a man by the name of Evan Roberts who was in the center of that revival. He was a young student at the college. He was among the academy students who attended Joshua meetings. Uh, Joshua meetings are, are meetings that the college set up to come and meet and pray and ask God to do something for their countries or uh, for them. At a pre-breakfast meeting, the evangelist concluded, crying out in Welsh, Lord, bend us. Lord, bend us. When Evan Roberts later recalled that morning, he explained it was the spirit that put the emphasis on bend us. That is what you need, said the spirit to Evan Robert, Roberts. Evans began praying, oh, Lord, bend me. The next meeting that morning, several students prayed out loud when given the opportunity. Robert himself knelt with his arms stretched out, perspiration soaking with his shirt as he agonized over committing himself to God. I'd been there. Wanting to do something for my city. I lived in a small city in Santee, 54,000 people. And God was calling me to minister to that city. And God was saying, I want you to sacrifice your life for me. Give up the sins. And that, and that was the easy part. Giving up the sin to me was like, all right, that's easy. Give up your free time. You love sports, give that up for me for a moment in your season in, this, in your life. Give up going hunting, give up, you know, all these, and I'm like, those aren't sins, Lord. And he's like, I know, but I want to do something in your life if you're willing. And I remember on the ground, sweating and wrestling with God, not wanting to give fully my life over in that area. But then when I said, yes, I'm ready, something marvelous happened. The Holy Spirit came upon me and then all of a sudden there was a mini revival that broke out. Many high schoolers and college kids started to get saved and we saw just a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By the way, my wife was there when that happened. 
God began to use her. We have pastors that are senior pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement that were there. Here's Evan Roberts. The next meeting that morning, several students prayed and he was one of them. He was wrestling with God and finally he prayed out loud, bend me, bend me, bend me. Later, one of the greatest revivals took place in Wales. Listen to this, I want to read you what J. Edwin Orr, a historian of that time, wrote about the revival's impact on the wider culture. Says this, drunkenness was immediately cut in half and many taverns went bankrupt. Crimes were so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves, signifying that there were no case of murder, assault, rape, or robbery, or the like to consider. You think we need that today in America? Oh my goodness. The police became unemployed. That's, well, that's what we want because of no, no crime. <laughs> but when there's crime, we want to hire the police. You know? The police became unemployed in many districts. Stoppage occurred in coal mines, not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul languages that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand <laughs> what was being said to them. <laughs> We need a revival, amen. amen. 1730, into the 40s, Jonathan Edwards, well known for his sinners in the hands of an angry God, began to preach right before the war there. Rightfully so, right? Great revival took place. John Wesley began his Methodist movement. George Whitfield, English preacher, brought in the fiery sermons to America. There was a revival. 1820s to 1850s ones, there's Charles Finney offered a fiery message of repentance in the big tent. Jesus calls everyone and anyone and can, uh, everyone can heed the call. The late 1875 to, 80, to 75 to 85, D.L. Moody begins a Bible study for street children in, in the 1850s, and it grows a substantial number whereby even President-elect Abraham Lincoln attends to see it for himself. The book I read says that he preached to over 100 million people. 100 million people? He must have traveled worldwide. And he would say, Jesus wants you the way that you are and come to him now because he's coming back soon. 1960 to 1970, Chuck Smith started the Calvary Chapel movement, the Jesus movement. That's who we're a part of. In April 8, 1966, Time Magazine covered a and posted this question on their magazine, is God dead? <laughs> what a difference a few years make, especially when God intervenes five years later in 1971 issue of Time described the spiritual awakening. Jesus is alive and well and living in the radiant <laughs> spiritual fervor of a growing number of young Americans. We need one of those. Lord, bend me. Lord, bend us. Are we ready for that? <laughs> Are we sincere? Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry because of the revival. <laughs> he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are, notice, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I want you to know, up until 25 years, I thought of God differently. I used to say, where are you, God? With all this crimes and wars and destruction and disease, where are you, God? because I didn't know him. And then 25, when I gave my life to Jesus, this is the God I came to know. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. When I gave my life to Jesus, my whole life changed radically, even up to this very moment, this very day. God has been so good to me. 
and so gracious and so patient. Jonah is angry because other people, other ra another race is enjoying him. <laughs> I wonder if that's how we feel. In verse 3, it says, Now, O Lord, take away my life. Jonah's really hit it hard here. <laughs> for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city. Then he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He wanted to see if the Ninevites would change. If they would go back to their own lifestyle, would they go, would they go back to evil? Would they go back to doing such hor horrific destruction and God would destroy them? So he's waiting up there. They don't. They're sincere in their faith. In verse 6, it says this, Then the Lord, the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give uh, shade for his head to ease his discomfort. <laughs> God is so gracious. He's so sovereign. Causes this gourd. And the gourd, there's, there's a couple of plants that they're in Iraq. You're thinking about 117, 120 degree weather there. And then when God blows that eastern wind, man, it's just hitting him. This big old plant leaf comes over his head. And God did that for him. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. It's the only time Jonah's happy. <laughs> Verse 7, but at the dawn the next day, God provided that inchworm. I mean, the worm. <laughs> Where did that worm? You know, I, I picture that worm making its way towards Jonah, not realizing what he's going to do, you know. God's sovereignty is working all out. The worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. God wants to change Jonah, but Jonah doesn't want to change for God. That happens to us, yes? Many of us. God wants to change us, but we're not willing. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you have the right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. <laughs> I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> Sounds like some of our high schoolers. <laughs> but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God is so in love with humanity that he sent Jonah. Jonah praised the mercy of God in chapter 2. Now he turns around and deplores it in chapter 4. The word angry in verse 1 comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to burn. Jonah was burning because Nineveh wasn't. <laughs> God wanted Jonah to understand how wrong it was for him to be angry about God's intervention to save this city. Jonah is very thankful for the plant, and he should have been thankful for God's kindness to Nineveh. However, Jonah is very angry when the plant dies, yet he would have been delighted if Nineveh had been destroyed. God is trying to show Jonah how confused his thinking is, valuing a plant, but having contempt towards the people. The ending may seem abrupt and unresolved, and we, might not <laughs> and we might not like to know how Jonah responded. <laughs> Let me get it. And we might like to know how Jonah responded. But it's not important to know what he said or did. Jonah's missing final answer isn't an oversight or the result of lacking the last page of the manuscript. Jonah's not the main character here. God is. We are left with an intentional, powerful statement concerning God's abounding Grace. Here's the takeaway lesson for all of us. We're so much like Jonah that it's scary. <laughs> There's a little Jonah in all of us and a whole lot of Jonah in most of us. That's why we need not just grace, but the abounding grace of God.
Jonah said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. This is the God I have come to know. This is the God that has asked us, us, every one of us here, to share with the world about his great love for humanity. He says, you're the light of the world. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You don't take a light and hide it under a bushel and you don't take salt and throw it out to stamp the tramp, don't trample on it and it loses its flavor. He said, God put us in here that we might affect the world. God loves humanity and he wants us to love humanity as well. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, many wonderful truths there that we've covered. Lord, I know that there are some here that have put themselves in a pickle and a problem and a situation and there's no hope. At least in their eyes, it's impossible. But God, you can come and intervene and I ask in the name of Jesus that you would intervene in their behalf. And Lord, there are others here that are like the people that didn't know you. They, they're waving their fist at you and just doing what pleases them. And today, Lord, they have heard of you and now you're knocking on their heart and saying, come to me. And right now, Lord, I wanna pray for them. I pray that you'd open up their hearts to you and that you would show them how loving and gracious you are, that you've given them a way to avoid hell. You've given them a way to access heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ. Speak to them right now, Jesus. And for us, Lord, who want to reach the world, but we don't know how, Lord, we're just going to rely on you. Keep giving us that grace. Keep giving us that love for humanity. And one day, Lord, we'll be an instrument of your hand being used for your glory, and that's what we desire. Have your way with us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.